everybody, welcome to another episode of Two Strike Noise, your weekly baseball history podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, my name is Jeff, and here is your other co-host, Mark A. Johnston. Mark, I'm not going to give you any intro music today, it's just straight, how you doing? You know, that's cool. I, I like to go from old school wrestling to modern, you know, wrestling where you have the great intros for me. Like the one time you played Don't Fall in Love with a Dreamer when I came on, that was a really good one. Well, um, but <laughs> well regardless, <laughs> I, I'm excited to be here and I'm ready to talk baseball. Well, remember last week I tried to play you Narcos. Uh, as, as your <laughs> as your entry theme, but only yeah. I could hear it. Well, everyone else heard it. Everyone heard it but you. Everyone so, but me. Yeah. So I actually want I want before we get into our, our show today, for, by the way, we've got a, a really great show. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it's been we pre-recorded it during the week, but I can't wait for everybody to hear it. But before we do that, I do want to revisit that last week because I was talking about Timmy Trumpet and, and Narcos and uh, Edwin Diaz entrance music and all that. He did get to play it live. Uh, I think it was last Wednesday. Yeah, I saw video, yeah. Yeah, so that was cool. Everybody was really into that. He's really into it, too, for somebody from Australia who had never held a baseball until he (laughs) was handed one to throw out the first pitch. Pretty cool. Yeah, so we were talking about that. Everybody was excited about that, except for Blaster Jacks, which I know you're very familiar with Blaster Jacks. Right. Oh, yeah. I eat them all the time. (laughs) So Blaster Jacks is actually a group. They wrote Narcos with Timmy Trumpet. So they're they're part of the success of this song that's been around for a while and Edwin's used for a while. But uh, they co-wrote the song. But what they want, they want nobody but Diaz to be able to use this song in baseball. (laughs) They put out a tweet that said this was awesome. This sounds great. Everybody else, pick out your own song. This is officially Edwin's song. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So uh, now to Timmy Trumpets, to his defense, he then tweeted, we're happy that anybody listens to our music. Anybody can use it. I mean, it seems kind of stupid to be like, no, we only want one person to use this. Yeah, no, two strike noise. We only want one demographic to listen yep. to this show. Well, no, we right. only really want one person. That's it. We want an one audience of one. It's no, fine, too. Put in your bids now. If you want to be <laughs> just, the one, uh, we'll just address everything to you directly. Uh, nobody else. But remember how when the MVP award was first given out, we talked about that you could only win it once. Once you right. won it, you were ineligible to win again. This is kind of like that, that if you use a song for a walk-up, that it's yours in perpetuity, apparently, according to Blaster Jack. So <laughs> you, you want to walk up to Crazy Train? Uh, sorry, Chipper Jones has that on lockdown from yeah, the uh, from the, the 2000s. Uh, you want Careless Whisper? Sorry, Josh Reddick already claimed it. It's like yeah. if walk-up songs were NFTs at this point. Yes, exactly. Edgar gets the you know Darth Vader's the Imperial March. That's it. That's it. Yeah. I've Nobody got else. I've got Machine Head by Bush. That's on lockdown because that has always been the song that I, I. Well, you are going to fantasy camp. They may they may. Uh, yeah, I know that wasn't on, on that. the questionnaire though. Like I've <sighs> I've I've seen some that like in the championship game. They'll put your picture up on the, you know, the, the screen of the main spring training thing and they'll announce it and stuff. But yeah, maybe maybe I'll have to do that. I'll have to be the one assuming I'm not in the championship game. I'll have to do that. You, you bring it. 
Yeah. You bring it to the masses. I will. <laughs> I'll, I'll start a revolution. So, uh, Mark, we've also referenced The Simpsons, believe it or not, many times here, <laughs> including mm-hmm. an entire episode on Homer at the Bat. Now, I found a baseball-centric plot that happened only in a Simpsons graphic novel that I thought oh, was interesting, wow. though. Because they reference baseball all the time. Beyond the episodes that have been baseball-centric, there are baseball jokes all the time in The Simpsons. So what happens in this is Bart and Milhouse go to a baseball game where they're going to be giving out free cards to the first 5,000 fans, a free pack of baseball cards. So Bart and Milhouse, by the way, Bart has no interest in the cards. He just wants to get out of school to go to this <laughs> game. So. Gotcha. They arrive, they claim their cards, they head down to get autographs, and uh, one of the guys signing autographs is Big Bill McClowski, one of our favorites. He was, oh, Big Bill. Yeah, Big Swing. He tricks them into calling a player Fishface. Now, the player's name is Willie Dipkin, and uh, <laughs> they get him to call, they get Barton Milhouse to call him Fishface, which coincidentally has two Fs in it. If you, yeah. if you can kind of see where this is, plot is going. The prank leads to Bart and Milhouse getting ejected from the game. And as revenge, Bart quickly writes something on Dipkin's bat, on the knob That's of the hilarious. bat, and leaves <laughs> with Milhouse. And, and then as they leave, you can see Dipkin is getting his picture taken for a, a different baseball card. Mm. <laughs> That's awesome. I haven't seen that. Yeah, well, this is this is again. This is only in a in a graphic novel. This has never oh, been. Right. That's amazing. In an actual episode. So when the new card comes out, it's revealed that Bart wrote "Fishface" on the knob of Willie Dipkin's bat, and as a result, the cards got pulled off the market. Only a few got out, making them very rare. That's outstanding. Somebody collected cards as yep. a kid, and there you have it. It's That's so great. I mean, the name Willie Dipkin, you know, obviously Billy Ripkin, <laughs> but Fishface is great because you can abbreviate it as FF, which is how Absolutely. the error card is abbreviated for the the actual Bill Ripkin card. So I just they're so clever. Shocking that you, writers for a show that's been on for like 17 decades are clever, but yeah, they are. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, this show is debuting on September 6th. My goodness. Mark, last week we said it's going to be a mess next week because we're getting into September call-ups. It and is. Yeah. My goodness. There is a, we could do two shows where we just focus like five minutes a piece on some of the names that made their their major league debut on September 6th. So I'm going to narrow it down just to a couple, one of which I wanted to talk about because I don't believe we've really talked about him before. But making his debut in 1948 today was Hank Bauer. Hank Bauer, probably best known, I would think, for being on the Yankees. He won seven World Series with the Yankees, so I think it's probably where he's best known for. Nickname, though, is what really gets me. His nickname is Old Potato Face. And uh, he was described once, his face was described as, quote, looking like a clenched fist. That's that's nice. This is is old-time baseball. He wasn't even a catcher. Like, that's what you expect a catcher to kind of be described as. But uh, like I said, seven World Series wins, uh, 1958 World Series. He had a big, big series. This was his final one. He was 35 years old. He hit 323, had four home runs, eight RBI, 
and an OPS of 1.032. When you get into the one point in OPS, you know you've done something spectacular. (laughs) Absolutely. He had a great uh, a great career, 14 years in the big leagues. Final tour with the Athletics when they were in Kansas City. He was traded for Roger Maris, which I'm pretty oh, sure wow. Roger Maris went on to do some things with the Yankees. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Beyond that, after uh, during his playing career, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Bauer enlisted in the Marine Corps, where he earned 11 campaign medals, two bronze stars, and two purple hearts. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay, I mean, so he, he swung at every pitch, is what you're saying. Yeah, he swung at everything, yeah, whether it was a pitch or, or not. I mean, he was a stand-up guy, and I'll get into that here. Two Purple Hearts also, I mean, that means he was injured twice in in battle. Just a great service to our country. He also, at one point, crawled on top of the Yankee dugout looking for a fan who was shouting racial slurs at his teammate, Elston Howard. Nice. Uh, he and Elston Howard were good friends. Obviously, we've talked about Elston Howard. Uh, he invented so many things that are still in use today. In baseball, uh, he was beyond a good baseball player and a catcher. He he was very influential in some of the things he came up with that we still use today. From 1956 to 58, Bauer set a World Series hitting streak record. He hit in 17 straight games in a row in the World Series. Wow. Obviously not in one year. That was... Yeah. It, was, it, was it used to be the best of 42. Yeah. And, and if they ended at 21 apiece, so be it. Yeah, well, like I said, this was from 56 to 58. So three seasons, of course, they're the Yankees at this point. They, you, you just pencil them in for the AL pennant at this point. But 17 straight games. This record has since been matched by Derek Jeter. Oh, wow. That's impressive, though. Yeah, it is. We haven't talked about him. And it's a, it's a name. We, you know, maybe we mentioned his name. We certainly haven't gone into depth with him. So I wanted to make sure we got old potato face out there. Some other names, and like I said, there's just too many to get into into any depth here, uh, that made their debut on September 6th. In 1963, Tommy John made his Major League debut, followed shortly in 67 by Gnettles, another big debut there. In 1972, Pete Lecoq made his debut. Pete Lecoq, we've made mention, he's the son of Peter Marshall, who was the original, I think he was the original host of Hollywood Squares. But I think our favorite story about Pete Lecoq is that he had a grand slam off of Bob Gibson. And Bob Gibson, <laughs> after giving up a grand slam to Pete Lecoq, said, I'm done. If I'm, <laughs> if this, <Yeah. laughs> if this jabroni's hitting grand slams off me, I'm done. But he ultimately got his revenge in a, uh, in an old timers game, like a decade later when he plunked him the first time he saw him. And you know what? The funny thing about that is everyone knew it was coming a decade later and everybody knew it was <laughs> they coming. They kind of just, he probably never said anything. They just expected it. Right. Exactly. Uh, some other debuts also in 1972, Gary Matthews. Sarge. He was a good defender. I don't think they had gold gloves. Well, no, they had to. I ha- He never won a gold glove, though. That's kind of odd. Because uh, it was he played in the 70s and 80s when there were definitely uh, gold gloves to be had. But uh, he did not earn any of those, apparently. He was a first-round draft pick by the Giants in 1968, and he's out of uh, California here. So 
good for him. Uh, also making his debut, 1987, two big names that, again, if you collected their rookie cards, I'm sure you're lighting cigars with $100 bills as we speak. Uh, making their debuts today in 87, Greg Jeffries and Ben McDonald. <laughs> Both I was heavily invested in. Yes, yes, well, I think we all were at that point. But remember Ben McDonald. I'm just going to tell everybody to put a put a pin in Ben McDonald for, for a little bit later in the show today. Again, just a huge list. These are just some of the names that stuck out because I knew we couldn't spend too long just going over debuts today. Uh, that'll do it for our pregame show. We're going to let the grounds crew come out and uh, do their stuff, and we are going to head into the main portion of the show. We have a, a guest today, somebody that uh, our lawyers put us in touch with, and I'll explain that here in a minute once we welcome our guest. All right, so we've got a special guest uh, joining us today, Tim Haggerty. He's the broadcaster, the radio play-by-play voice for the El Paso Chihuahuas, who are the San Diego Padres AAA affiliate. Also a uh, pretty uh, busy writer. He's written uh, for Baseball Digest, Sporting News, Hard Times, Sabre, a couple of Sabre bios that I enjoyed. Uh, But he's also got a couple of books, one that's uh, been out for a while about minor league team names. And also a new one that was brought to our attention, uh, Tim, by our lawyer. Uh, Because of the name of this book, it is called Tales from the Dugout, A Thousand and One Humorous Inspirational and Wild Antidotes from Minor League Baseball. First of all, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, great to meet you guys. Thanks for having me. So I'm I'm joking about our lawyer, but we do do about one show a month that is called Tales from the Dugout, where we just do kind of shorter stories. And it kind of seems like uh, this book that comes out uh, of March of next year might fit right in with the way we do Tales from the Dugout as well. You've been a a minor league uh, broadcaster for quite some time, so you've got quite a few really good stories about uh, some things that people might not know about. Yeah, thank you. 1,001 stories, so it is a lot. They're, they're short, quick stories in my book. Uh, they'll be accompanied by fun illustrations. As you mentioned, it'll be in stores in March. It is available now for pre-order on Amazon and other places books are sold. And yeah, the origin of it was 10 years ago, I was looking up something else and I came across this story from 1887 and there was a Texas League game in Austin and it was delayed when a wild bull ran on the field. <laughs> and this bull was trampling all over the field. There was dirt everywhere. It knocked down a fence. The fans were shrieking. And I just thought to myself, if I've never heard this story before, the odds are most fans haven't. You know, I do this for a living. Uh, so that took me throughout minor league history. So the story is packed with some modern stories, but also some that goes back to the 19th century. So if you've got to pick out your best story, the one that you like the most of these 1,001, which that's a lot of stories, what, uh, wow. Which one jumps out at you the most? You know, the one that comes to mind because it's still such a mystery was in 1978, there was a double-A game in Jersey City, New Jersey. Bristol was playing there. Uh, Ricky Henderson was playing for Jersey City. Wade Boggs was playing for the Red Sox double-A team in Bristol. And a right-handed hitter hits a fly ball to right fields, and it disappeared. It didn't go over the fence. It wasn't caught. The relievers down there are perplexed. And I just got so into this story in 2017. I, I'm trying to, it became a hobby of mine. I'm trying to track down players who are on the field. I talked to an Eastern League umpire, Jerry Davis, who's gone on to be a longtime Major League umpire. He was an Eastern League umpire at that time. I even got a message from a fan who was at that game who described it as the most bizarre thing they've ever seen. 
literally this fly ball disappeared. It was a clear night. It wasn't foggy. The umpires get together. They understandably don't know what to do. There's nothing in the rule book about when a ball disappears. So they decided to call it a double. So now there's some precedent. If you're at a ball game and the ball goes up and it doesn't come down, it's a double. I I I read that story when we first started talking to you because if you we're on, we're on Zoom here, obviously our listeners can't see that, but I am a huge Ricky Henderson fan, and as soon as that that piqued my interest and read that, yeah, that was quite a quite a story. The the lights also apparently. Uh, very akin to the the first lights that the uh, the Kansas City Monarchs used to travel with, where they would just drive them around and really didn't do a whole lot of good, apparently. Yeah, yeah, that was the final season of the uh, Jersey Indians was the name. I know we don't use the name Indians anymore, but at the time that was the name of that team. But they were an A's affiliate, but they they were on a very low budget and did not want to purchase new uniforms, so they actually kept that team name. Minor league baseball was not the booming business that it is now. And really that was to my benefit with this book, because a lot of the chaos that happened wouldn't happen these days. You know, another thing that was was so obvious looking at early baseball history, these umpires were abused. Oftentimes it was one umpire taking a train city to city. They're working by themselves. And at that time it was a very polite culture in the first half of the, the 20th century and the theory is the fans were, were sick of being bossed around at the factory they were working at or something. So they took that out on the umpire. And I found stories of umpires being chased from the ballpark, being assaulted at the hotel. This poor guy named Kane was umpiring a game in Toledo in 1905. He gets bombarded by eggs and mud after making a bad call there one time. It was a, a ruthless time. You know, you guys know your history. You probably already know this, but There's a perception that in the early 1900s and in the late 19th century that baseball was a gentleman's game that we would shake hands after. It is not true. It's never been true. Uh, Professional ballplayers have never been 100% gentlemen. Back then, they're fighting each other. They're fighting the umpire. I tell some, you know, it doesn't get violent in my book, but I tell some stories that really show the chaos of early minor league history. This was a time full of saloons, Probably the one story in the book that might not be family friendly, but if you're reading the book to your kid, maybe you can uh, use your own language. But in 1907, the San Antonio team won the Texas League Championship, and they had a team celebration at a brothel. (laughs) Well, I thought that was the one story that I thought, should I put this in there? And I just thought it was so good that I had to. Well, we did just on our very last uh, Tales from the Dugout. I had found a story from the newspaper in the early 1900s of an umpire here in California that actually uh, a farmer, a a fan that was a a farmer or a rancher, actually shot him twice with a shotgun during the game. The the umpire uh, was not mortally wounded and finished the game and dragged the guy out of the ballpark. So yeah, it is definitely, (laughs) it was a dangerous job. I mean, we've talked about, they used to distribute beer and actual glass mugs. And if you're mad at the umpire, that was something that would, uh, was easily throwable at at these guys. That's a great point. It reminds me of the, this umpire steamboat Johnson. He umpired from the early 1900s all the way through the early 1940s, I think. Uh, To this day, he's umpired more minor league games than anyone in history. And he used to talk about the scars that he had on his head from pop bottles, as he used to phrase it. So you're right, with the beer mugs, 
uh, and soda came in glass bottles, and they would throw it at the empire. We, we talked a little bit, uh, actually just last week, about Dusty Rhodes and uh, his uh, 1961 Tacoma Giants team and how he had nailed his cleats up to the ceiling, and they were there for years to come. People would ask, who's that, Dusty Rhodes? Oh, that figures. Um, you, you, there's a lot of characters, a lot of characters in baseball. For some reason, it just absolutely soaks in characters like Jeff, for instance. And uh, I'm just curious of, of all these these great stories. Throw out some of the characters because we love one. We love nicknames, and two, we love the whole character stories about goofy baseball players. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that, and and I totally agree with you. And luckily, my book is full of characters. Um, First off, when you mentioned you were a bat boy, you'll love this one. So in 1984, there was a Portland Beavers teenage bat boy, 14 years old, named Sam Morris, who got ejected from a AAA game. Lee Elia, the, speaking of characters, known for his temper, both in the major leagues and the minor leagues, he was Portland's manager. And he got so upset at the umpire that he threw a chair onto the field. Elia gets ejected. And the umpire says, I'm not picking up this chair for Elia. And points at the bat boy and said, get that chair back in the dugout. And the bat boy says, no. <laughs> Out of loyalty to his manager, the, the man, uh, bat boy refuses to pick up this thrown chair. So the umpire tosses the bat boy, too. <laughs> um, so I'm glad Mark didn't get ejected, assuming you didn't get thrown out of any games in I, Tacoma. Not that I recall. So that's a, that's a good thing. Um, but you mentioned characters. You know, one that comes to mind. There was this guy who owned the Chattanooga team in Tennessee for decades, Joe Engel, and he would do anything to get headlines. He had players entering the field on camels. He, I'm looking at my notes to get the year right. In 1931, he traded his shortstop to Charlotte for a turkey, and then he served the turkey at the winter banquet and said the turkey was having a better year. <laughs> <laughs> So you've you've done a lot of research. I you know obviously these are the kind of things that we dig into, especially on our tales from the dugout. Who is your favorite character of all time, and also who is your favorite player of all time? Wow, yeah, favorite character of all time. You know, I already mentioned him, but this guy Steamboat Johnson. What was great about him? He was so entertaining, and at that time things were less regulated than they are now. So this umpire would actually run next to base runners to get a closer view. <laughs> he would bellow out names because back then the umpires were introducing the starting lineups. And there was this great article I saw in the Nashville, Tennessean, and it said that a fan in Atlanta could hear Steamboat from Memphis by opening a window. <laughs> the way he would bellow these names. And what was great about him is that he actually wrote a biography and he would bring copies of the book city to city with him and sell them at games. And one day in Mobile, they got so upset with him, they threw his books on the field at him. And Steamboat says, that's okay. And he scooped them up and he sold them in the next city. So he sold the same books twice. <laughs> side hustle. <laughs> the early yeah. side hustle. It's marketing, baby, marketing. Exactly. But Steamboat told this story. It, it came to mind as a candidate when you asked me earlier what my favorite story is. This is up there. In 1912, Denver is playing at St. Joseph, Missouri, uh, Western League game. There were some cowboys that showed up. And they had money on the game. And Steamboat says that bottom of the ninth inning, base is loaded, home team is down by a run. And this player hits a deep fly ball at a center field. And it looks like this is on a trajectory to go over the fence and win the game of the Grand Slam. 
Well, the Cowboys are concerned about this because this would affect their gambling. So according to Steamboat, the Cowboys pulled out their guns, shot the live ball, and blew it to smithereens. (laughs) Steamboat doesn't know how to rule this. What's the ruling when a ball in flight gets blown to smithereens? So he called it a grand slam because it, quote, disappeared from my view. So, yeah, Cowboys... Cowboys shooting at live balls. That's an <laughs> early version of Jeffrey Mayer in right field right, at the Yankees. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so who's your who's your favorite baseball player? I mean, we we especially focus on the 80s and 90s, which was, you know, when we were really I mean, we're into baseball now, but I mean, <laughs> especially me, I didn't have a job at that point. I was still in school, so I could focus 24 hours on baseball. Who's the guy that you grew up, you know, this was this was your guy? Yeah, I'm from Massachusetts, so it's a surprising answer, but uh, my favorite guy was Ozzie Smith. And the reason was, uh, my parents tell me that there was one day on the local TV news that I saw this guy doing backflips on TV, the way Ozzie used to do on opening day and other special occasions. And I said, who is this guy? Uh, who is this Aussie guy? And then, of course, I went on to see him on This Week in Baseball, making the highlight real plays. And so even though I didn't necessarily grow up a, a Cardinals fan at all, he was the guy I always collected his cards. I remember still being a, a teenager, and he he wrote back um, with a signed baseball card the way that some of us used to, you know, submit those to players hoping to get them autographed. And he did. That was a great thrill. And uh, Aussie thinks my name is Mike. My name is Tim, but Aussie thinks my name is Mike. And the reason is... In 2006, I was at the winter meetings in Orlando, and Ozzie Smith was one of the scheduled uh, banquet speakers at this event at the baseball winter meetings. And I normally hate to do things like this, but I went up to the general manager of the team I was working for at AA Mobile and said, is there any way you can get me into that banquet? Uh, Ozzie Smith is my favorite player of all time, and he did. So afterward, Ozzie was kind of just milling around, meeting with people. And I was standing next to a coworker named Mike, and Ozzy approaches us. So I said, uh, Ozzy, my name's Tim and this is Mike. But during my introduction, Ozzy kind of got pulled away by somebody else. So he kind of was looking at two people at once. And all he heard me say was, and this is Mike. So Ozzy Smith, my all-time favorite player, looks at me in the eye and says, hi, Mike. <laughs> well, you're not going uh, to correct him. He's Ozzy exactly, Smith. Exactly right. That's just what I was going to say is you can't correct Ozzy Smith. So. So it was fun. I, I got to talk to him and he was born in Mobile. So we kind of had that in common. Uh, coincidentally, years later, I worked in Mobile. So we talked about that. It's kind of a fun trivia fact. Uh, people that love the game like you. Mobile has like the third or fourth most Hall of Famers out of any city. It's something in the water or something. But Hank Aaron was born there. Satchel Paige, um, Willie McCovey, Billy Williams, Ozzy. Am I forgetting someone? Anyway, yeah, they have like five or six Hall of Famers, which is amazing considering the city and the size it is. So you've uh, you've written about uh, all these great stories from the minor leagues, team names. What is the thing that you have seen with your own eyes, not read, but the thing, and maybe you've got some of these in the book, that you kind of had to, if you weren't there to see it, you wouldn't have believed it, or the craziest thing? Yeah, probably the, the craziest thing that I've seen uh calling a minor league baseball game was in 2007. I was with AA Mobile. We were in Montgomery and a pitcher named Matt Elliott allowed the game tying home run in the eighth inning. And he was so upset when he went back into the dugout after the inning ended that he slammed the bathroom door after entering the bathroom in the dugout. And he slammed it so hard that it like jarred the lock up against the door. 
He's locked in the bathroom and is in there for Mobile's entire top of the ninth inning at bat. He's still the pitcher in the game. Mobile takes the field, and this guy's locked in the bathroom. And it was so strange to see it from the press box because you see everyone else in their position, and there's no new pitcher warming up, so it's not like it's an injury. The manager, Brett Butler, is literally scratching his head talking to the umpires on the field. Mobile had to bring in a new pitcher because this guy was locked in the bathroom. He was locked in the bathroom until 40 minutes after the game ended. Wow. Um, And this poor guy, Sports Illustrated did an article about it. The New York Times did an article about it. This guy became nationally known as the pitcher who was locked in the bathroom. That's that's not remotely embarrassing. My gosh, that's that's awesome. And you were there for that. Yeah, yeah. So I filled time during a bathroom delay. It was interesting because... um, I'm also confused with what's going on. This is really before we texted the way we do now. And somebody slips me a piece of paper and it just says, pitcher locked in bathroom. And I looked at them and thinking, can I put this on the air? Like, can I announce this? Is this? And the person's nodding. They're saying, yeah. That's um, awesome. So yeah, that that's a tape I have for the archives. That's beautiful. Again, one of the things, and Mark and I have talked about this, I love going to minor league games. Uh, both Mark and I work in, in professional baseball. I love going to minor league baseball because of the promotions. What is, uh, give us some of your all-time favorite promotions that you've seen in the minor leagues that you're not going to see at a Mariners game. Yeah, so uh, in 2014, I was calling a game here in El Paso. I'm the broadcaster for the Padres AAA team in El Paso. Um, and we had a much hyped Wiener dog race sponsored by Wiener Schnitzel. But there was a rogue dog that instead of staying on the track and running straight toward the finish line, ran around the field, zigzagging. Players are trying to scoop it up. Uh, This dog delayed the game by a couple minutes running around the field. That got a lot of attention. That ended up on Good Morning America, all sorts of stuff. But uh, some other top promotions. I remember back in 2002, the Charleston River Dogs had this interesting idea. They said, well, teams try to set attendance records. What if we try to set the record for lowest attendance? And they said fans would not be allowed in until the bottom of the fifth inning once the game was official. So their attendance was zero that night. And they said when fans entered, they were running all around trying to pick up the loose foul balls that were untouched. <laughs> that record has since been tied many times because of the pandemic. That's a good point, right? <laughs> right. So you mentioned Brett Butler was man, uh, managing a, a, a one of the minor league teams. That must be one of the perks of the job is you get to go and talk to and, and interview, but also just be around some of these players that you grew up watching and that I'm sure we talk about a lot on this podcast, like Brett Butler. Um, wh- what are some of the cool, cool guys that you got to meet from, you know, when you were a child growing up watching baseball that now you've gotten to talk to? That is a great perk of the job. And it's funny, those are the times that I do feel maybe a little bit starstruck. I don't think it affects me when I'm meeting them or interviewing them, but I remember a couple of years ago, Bernie Williams was in Salt Lake performing the national anthem on his guitar. I'm interviewing him, and I'm like, wow, Bernie Williams. Whereas recently with El Paso, we had Robinson Cano, a very accomplished player. But Cano was in the majors when I was a grown-up. So it was great to talk baseball with him, but maybe there wasn't that same boy in you that comes out you know you know who's been great to get to know that it's just a great gift to call him i don't know friend might be too far but uh acquaintance you know we, we've communicated and he knows my name and we, we talk once a year is uh trevor hoffman who's a special assistant with the padres and just an a plus guy i mean this guy even when the cameras aren't around 
this guy's awesome. I remember seeing him on the sidewalk last year outside the ballpark in El Paso, and this person asked him for an autograph, and it's just them two. It's like at 11 p.m., and the person was effusive. They said, oh, thank you so much, Trevor, and Trevor says, thank you for asking. Like, that's how he is. He's, he's appreciative this person asked for his autograph. In 2009, uh, we mentioned him already, but getting to interview Ricky Henderson was a great thrill at Sacramento. He was awesome. Um, I, I told him, I said, I know you're very busy. We could do it three minutes. And we sat there and talked for 10 minutes. And then after the recorder, he just kept talking. Um, so, yeah, I guess those are a few. One cool thing that I got to call while I didn't interview him was Vladimir Guerrero's final professional game. Vlad was with Toronto in 2012, long before his son became a star with Toronto. He was in their organization at AAA Las Vegas trying to get back to the big leagues. And he said to the Blue Jays, okay, either call me up by this day or else I'd like to be released. And they said, I'm sorry, we don't see you as a fit. And he never played again. So I was like, wow, Vladimir Guerrero, this Hall of Fame player. And uh, I did play-by-play for his last game. So that was a cool one too. So w- when you talked to Robinson Cano while he was there, was it a little odd after seeing him hit a home run wearing a square po- <laughs> SpongeBob SquarePants uh, jersey? <laughs> yeah, it was funny. Uh, the manager, Jared Sandberg, speaking of great players from our youth in the 80s and the 90s, he's uh, Ryan Sandberg's nephew. Uh, Jared was kind enough to give us a heads up and said, hey, just so you know, the Padres are going to send Robinson Cano to El Paso tomorrow which was a complete surprise because Robinson had been released by San Diego. He was not being sent down from the minors. He was a free agent for seven days after playing for the Padres in the majors and then came back to the Padres. And Jared told us, he said, the first day we're going to let him get settled. He won't play that day, but he's going to play on Saturday. And instantly in my head, I thought, that's SpongeBob SquarePants jersey <laughs> night. I said, this is going to get some attention. But he was totally down to earth. Another guy who would greet fans, would sign autographs. You know, when there was a Little League team in front of the dugout, he'd go by and give them all fist bumps. Uh, he did interviews in El Paso. It's interesting, like, the big names when they come back to AAA. In recent years in our league, we've seen Matt Holiday and Ryan Howard. And you would think these guys might be grouchy after everything they've achieved in the majors, but it really isn't that way. I think that in those cases, they're all old for professional baseball players, to put it bluntly. They're all in their late 30s. I think they're appreciative to still have a uniform on. I think they understand that there's other things that are going to take place in the afternoon that are outside of, you know, just preparing for that day's game. So they sort of show up to the ballpark understanding that someone's going to ask me something. So it really is not true when the big names come back. In El Paso, we've had Edwin Jackson, Jeff Francoeur, guys that have accomplished some big things, and they're all very approachable. Well, you mentioned a name there. <laughs> Jeff yeah, Francoeur. Yeah. <laughs> who is a show favorite here because not only just from what I'm going to I'm going to ask you about here and you got to to witness and I assume be a part of, but Jeff Francoeur is just a great and he's great with fans. I mean, I I live here in the Bay Area. I'm a lifelong A's fan. Even though he was never on the A's, he had a great relationship with the fans out in right field. He would throw them money wrapped around, you know, rubber banded to a baseball so they could all buy some, you know, some food. Uh, they had a pregame pizza party with him. I mean, he is just a, a, a great fun. And I think he does uh, he does Braves games on pregame or postgame or something now. Just a really fun guy. But we have made mention of it. We talked about it in an episode, the just epic prank that was played on him when 
also to go along with what you said, a, a guy that spent a lot of time in the big league spent an entire season down in AAA. But his teammates played just this epic prank on him where they told him that one of the teammates was uh, was deaf. The level of buy-in from everybody, and I have to assume you were included in this at, at some point, right? Because if you were around and talking to him and Jeff Francoeur comes by, you kind of got to play this up. Is What are your, your recollections of this prank? Yeah, so that took place at the beginning of the 2014 season when that was the first year of the El Paso Chihuahuas and they were finishing up the stadium. So El Paso by design had a 28-day road trip that year as things were being finalized here. So I met the team at the end of spring training in Peoria, Arizona. And Pat Murphy, who was not just um, accepting of pranks, but was like a ringleader as the manager. Things were always going on when, when Pat was here. He's a very entertaining, funny person. So I arrived, and I don't know any of these players yet. Pat Murphy pulls me aside. I had known him from previous seasons. And he said, if anybody asks you, Jorge Reyes, one of the pitchers, Jorge Reyes is deaf. And I said, what? And he told me all about it. Cody Decker, the filmmaker, another entertaining player. I think what Cody did on that is he was respectful. He understood that um, he had to be really sensitive not to offend people with hearing impairment. And what Cody actually did was he was in touch with a deaf professional baseball player who's a friend of his. That person confirmed it was funny. And Cody didn't, there was no impersonations of any deaf people in there. Cody thought that was really important. And yeah, my one loose involvement was, was there was this uh, scene that got cut from Cody's movie where Cody uses a British accent, uses a, someone else's phone, calls Frank Hoare and claims to be with a newspaper called the deaf times that features people like Jorge Reyes and Frank Hoare understandably says to this fake reporter, how'd you get my phone number? And Cody said, said, well, uh, Tim Haggerty with the El Paso Chihuahuas gave it to me. <laughs> so I don't even know this guy yet, Frank Hoare. This is at the beginning of the season. And here's my, his first impression of me is I just hand out his cell phone number to anybody. <laughs> um, so Frank Hoare came up to me in the hotel lobby, and he's looking at me. I was like, Jeff, he's like, what happens? And at the end, he's like, all right, just next time just ask me first. So, yeah, it went on for a couple of weeks. Pat Murphy said, hey, you want to come down to the clubhouse in Tacoma? It's at the end of that long road trip. We're going to reveal to Jeff that Jorge Reyes is not deaf. And the funny thing I remember about that day was Cody Decker's recording him. And Pat Murphy said to Cody, are you going to post this? And Cody said, yeah. And he said, how many followers do you have on Twitter? And Cody said, about 20,000. And the room roared. Oh, my God. The thought of 20,000 people finding out about this. But in my head, I'm like, some of these guys don't know how Twitter works. You know, just when you have 20,000 followers, that means this could be seen by many, many more people than that if it keeps getting shared. And <laughs> that's what happens. You know, within a week of that video coming out, a million people had seen it. I love Frank Coors reaction when when it's revealed to him because he was such a good sport. He thought it was hilarious. I mean, at least from what I've seen on the video, it, I, there was no kind of anger that he had been no. pranked or anything. I just, I loved it. Yeah, Jeff had, he uh, sent Cody Decker a signed bat and said to Cody, best prank ever, Jeff Francoeur. <laughs> so years later, they're still in touch about it. Yeah, you, you're uh, dialing up my memories on that. That was... Uh, eight, nine years ago now. 
it was funny because at that time, the Chihuahuas had not played a home game yet. All of that took place on that month-long road trip. And uh, it's funny kind of hearing from people in El Paso that were following that. And they're thinking, oh, man, this, this new team we're getting, these players are crazy. <laughs> it's a good team-building exercise uh, on that road trip. <laughs> well... I was, uh, what we do with our guests here is we have a segment of the show we call Wax Packs Heroes. As you've seen, we love to talk about baseball, especially the 80s and 90s. So uh, we have got just uh, way too many <laughs> packs of baseball cards that we've uh, bought and been given now uh, from the 80s and 90s. And what we like to do with our guests is open them up. It's a nice way to kind of remember, you know, we'll see some names we haven't uh, talked about for a while. or Oh, I remember this guy. We like to look at some of their numbers. But we also play a game with it. And what we do is um, we take the baseball reference war of the year of the cards. So in this case, I've got some 97 Don Russ. So we'll take the B-War of the player, and then we also have some qualifiers that can add or subtract to it. So uh, if they've got anything on their eyes, like eye black, um, in the in the 80s, a lot of players had those big science teacher glasses that they used to, like Vance Law, who's actually was a, was a guest and joked about his glasses. <laughs> uh, sunglasses, flip down, anything like that. Uh, you get an extra tenth of a point of war. If they're wearing real stirrups and we can see the white sanitaries or gold if they're A's, you get an extra tenth of a point of war. But if they're wearing the two and ones, which we're not fans of, that's a minus a tenth of a point of war. Uh, if they've got sweatbands that have got uh, their caricature on it, Ozzy Smith used to wear oh, those, yeah. the, the Mims bands, uh, that or their jersey number, extra tenth of a point of war. If they've got a mustache, Again, in the 80s, this is all free money here. <laughs> Get an extra tenth of a point of war. If it's a Tom Selleck, Wade Boggs, Keith hernandez ask you can get two tenths of a point of war. And if they are now in the Hall of Fame, you get a whole point of war. So uh, we're going to go ahead and open these up and let's see, uh, let's see who we can get here and maybe get some good stories that we remember about some of these guys. One of our things is we send the gum to uh, whoever participated in Tim. So we're going to need your address. Yeah, well, this is 97 Don Russ. So they had, they had, you know, Don Russ never uh, did gum. But fortunately, <laughs> we are, we've got some nice high glossy cards here. So your first card is a member of the Boston Red Sox here. It's Darren Bragg. Oh, my God. Darren Bragg from Connecticut. There's a great Darren Bragg story. Darren Bragg and Mo Vaughn played high school football against each other. And I remember watching a Red Sox game and Nesson did a great job. They found this old grainy footage of one of them tackling the other one. And then they played together with the Red Sox in the nineties. Isn't that crazy? I wouldn't want to be tackled by Mo Vaughn. That's, no. that's on, not on my no. list of things to do. Yeah. Darren was uh, in recent years was a hitting coach in Billings with the Reds affiliate. So he's still around. The, are they still the Mustangs? The Billings Mustangs? Exactly. Yeah. Billings Mustangs. Yeah. Uh, so in 1997, he was uh, appeared in 153 games, played all the outfield spots, also a little bit of third base. He hit 257, nine home runs, 57 RBI, 10 stolen bases, an 87 OPS plus, and that equals a 3.5 WAR. That is a great start right there. And he's got some eye black on. So 
that'll be a 3.6 right out of the gate. That's a, that's a strong start. All I'm right. surprised you said he played third base. I remember him solely as a right fielder. but Yeah, I, I remember him, and maybe it was with the Mariners. No, actually, when he was with the Mariners, it was just outfield. But yeah, he played, this was the only year, apparently, where he appeared at third base. So okay. <laughs> might have might have been an extra inning game at that point. Next guy is a show favorite here for the St. Louis Cardinals. It is Gary Gaetti. Long career. Great hitter. Gary Gaetti. Triple plays. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. 1990, right? That's an amazing fact. I was just pulling this up the other day. The Minnesota Twins, God, I think the answer was uh, they've turned 12 triple plays in their team history, and two of them came in the same game. Isn't that crazy? And probably 11 of them were started by Gaetti just standing <laughs> on the bag there during the Park pitch. on third base, that's right. <laughs> so let's see, Gary Gaetti uh, with the Cardinals. Of course, I think of Gaetti with the Twins, as, as you mentioned. Me too. Uh, member of the uh, 1987 World Series team there. Nicknamed the Rat. It's a good name for him. Uh, 148 <laughs> games. Played a little bit of first base, third base, and apparently pitched in 1997 at one point. We'll definitely have to look at that. 148 games, hit 251, 17 home runs, 69 RBI, seven stolen bases as a 38-year-old. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. And an 85 OPS plus, and all of that equals a war of 1.9. No, nothing else on this card is going to help you out, but a 1.9. Not bad. Got to look up and see if he he actually pitched. It says he did. Yep, here here it is. Actually, he pitched in uh, three different seasons. Ended up uh, career numbers, two and a third inning, five hits, two runs, both earned. Gave up a Not home bad. run, walked one, and struck out one. He's got, a, he's got a big league K under his belt. Not bad. Yeah. Okay, next you have got uh, Royals pitcher Tim Belcher. Another long career. He played for a bunch of teams. What uh, I remember him with Cleveland, with the Dodgers, Kansas City. Seen Oakland too? No, nope. yeah, Tacoma specifically. Well, he never made it up to the big leagues, but Tacoma. Okay. Right. He pitched in Tacoma. That's right. Maybe that's why I think A's with him back when they were an A's affiliate. Also, the Angels, Reds, Mariners, Tigers, and White Sox. Do you guys remember that video of him, like in the tunnel? I think he like started screaming at a reporter after a, a tough loss. I remember watching the video. It was like. Nothing got physical, but it was like a fairly famous confrontation one year. The Kenny Rogers school of, of media interaction, I guess. <laughs> uh, let's see, 1997, he went 13-12, and 12, a 5.02 ERA. Uh, he did have three complete games, one shutout, 213 and a third innings, 113 strikeouts for a 93 ERA plus, and that will equal a war of 1.1. So you're, you're going the right way here. Uh, let's see. Once traded by the Dodgers with John Wetland for Eric Davis. Wow. So if you're traded for Eric Davis, that's not a bad thing. Some big names there. Yeah. yeah. Boy, he was drafted. He was drafted first overall twice. He was drafted in 93, first pick in the 93 in the, I'm sorry, in the 83 draft by the Twins. Didn't sign. And then the next year. He was drafted first overall by the Yankees. That's a gamble, huh? First overall pick, and you say, no thanks. Yeah, but uh, apparently paid off for him there. All right, you're at 6.6. Your next card, oh, this is going to be a good, it's it's an Angels outfielder named after a fish. 
1993 Rookie of the Year. <laughs> yep. We've got <laughs> Tim Salmon. Tim Salmon is one of the best players in history to never be an all-star. Absolutely. Look at his look at his baseball reference page. It's it's crazy that never even in one year he was an all-star. He and Kurt Gibson, I think, are the two guys exactly. that come yeah. to mind. And Gibson was an MVP. That's a really good one. I've, I've read, though, that Kurt Gibson, actually, he was never voted as a starter and always turned it down. Oh. Still what I think of when, when I think of somebody that, yeah. if you look at their baseball reference, yeah, there's no, no all-star appearances. You did mention Rookie of the Year, also a member of the 2002 World Series team with the Angels. In 97, 157 games, got a lot of MVP votes, came in seventh, hit 296, 33 home runs, 129 RBI, and a 134 OPS plus, and that's good for a 5.0 war, and he's got eye black, so that's a 5.1. It doesn't, um, I remember Tim Salmon is really, really close to a milestone. Is his home run total like 299? Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's got to be, I know you're sitting there in a, a mansion and you've had a good life, but does a part of you think, ah, just one more home run? Yeah, we were, we did, we were talking about Andres Galarraga a couple of weeks ago, who right. ended up with 399. It's- Check out, um, this guy now works for the Padres and is a really nice guy. I've enjoyed talking to him. Ian Kinsler finished his career with 1,999 hits. Mm. Definitely remember Ian Kinsler. Remember with the Rangers. Uh, let's see. Yeah, one thousand nine hundred and did. Have you ever asked him? Did he? Did he ever have a thought of just in twenty twenty just coming back just for that one hit? I haven't asked him, but because I'm sure in his head there's one example. There's that one scorer in Detroit that screwed mm-hmm. him one day that called something an error that should have been a hit that he reflects back on. I'm sure of it. All right. Well, your next uh, your next player is a self described idiot, probably most famously for the for the Red Sox. But here he is with the Royals. It's Johnny Damon. Oh, we're getting some big names. Another long career there, Johnny Damon. You know, the first thing you think about is that hair when he had the long <laughs> hair and the shaggy beard. Nicknamed Caveman. Um, yep. You know what else I think about with him is just how many great position players the Royals had coming up in the nineties. Carlos Beltran, Johnny Damon, Jermaine Dye. You know, Michael Tucker had a long career. Oh, yeah. I remember Johnny Damon signed a baseball card for me uh, as a young Kansas City player. I mean, that was probably maybe the, around the time of this card set, 96 or 97. Well, in uh, ni- in uh, 97, his second full year in the big leagues, pretty good. Hit 275, eight home runs. Never uh, later in his career had some power, but definitely not early. 48 RBI, 16 stolen bases. He was caught 10 times, though. That's not a ideal uh, <laughs> ratio there. And that ends up with an 88 OPS plus and a 2.2 war. And uh, nothing on this card is going to... Oh, wait. No, I can see some... I see some actual stirrups there and sanitary. So that's a good look. So that'll be a 2.3. And that'll bring your total up to 14 even. Now, I just to give you some names, uh, I haven't converted a lot of our guests' scores because we used to go by the Beckett. I, ha- I had a Beckett from 1992, and we'd go by the value there. And uh, shockingly enough, they were not high. Uh, since we've gone to this new format, I haven't rescored everybody. But uh, some names that you're coming up on. Bobby Valentine had a 21.4. 
Uh, Rick Riz of the Mariners, 22.1. Dave Dravecki had a 24. And then uh, fellow author John Vampatella is our leader with 31.8. He had a great pack. So those are some, some numbers to shoot for. Yeah, some big names there. Yeah, your next card is a Dodger pitcher. He's wearing two and ones. I'm going to just say that right off the bat. Ishmael Valdez. Ishmael Valdez from Mexico, right? When I was in Mobile 2005 as their broadcaster, there was a prospect, Travis Chick, uh, made it to the big leagues with Seattle, and Travis Chick came to the Padres because he was traded for Ishmael Valdez. That's what comes to mind for him. I'm surprised his nickname wasn't The Whale, but uh, there's no no nickname <laughs> listed here. 1997 for the Dodgers, 10-11 and 11 with a 2.65 ERA with 30 starts. That's really impressive. 196 and two-thirds innings, 140 strikeouts, a 146 ERA plus, and that is good for a war of 5.3. Wow. Good season. Minus the tenth of a point. Yeah, minus the tenth of a point for the uh, for the stirrups. Next, this is a a kind of an iconic card. It's uh, Reggie Sanders with the Reds, but if this doesn't date this card, he's holding up a video camera which I don't know if you can see that. It's the size of uh, the old baseball encyclopedias. It's like a high eight. So Reggie Sanders works for the Royals now, and I saw him recently, and this guy is fit, man. He Reggie Sanders in, like, 2019 looked the same as he did in 1997. It was amazing. Yeah, he was he was on Atlanta when I worked, uh, when I worked for them, and the thing... We did not, nobody really cared for Reggie Sanders because he took so long at the plate and in between pitches. Mm. He was kind of the Robinson Cano of that team. Let's see, in 1997, 86 games. So it appears he was hurt a little bit. Hit 253, 19 home runs, 56 RBI, 13 stolen bases, but an OPS plus of 120. And uh, that will get you a war of 2.0. Now, we usually say anything on their face. He's got his eye up to the, uh, to the lens finder here on the, on the camera. So I'm going to give it to you. And that'll be a 2.1. And that'll take you up to 21.3. Your next card. Oh, this is a good card. F- one of the uh, fathers of one of the many uh, generational players on the Blue Jays. It's Dante Bichette. Dante Bichette, that epic video of the walk-off home run in Colorado when he's pumping his fist. Mm-hmm. What were the? What was the nickname of? Uh, yeah, it was uh, Blake Street Bombers. The Blake Street Bombers. There you go. Let's see, Dante Bichette. Overall, 14 years in the big leagues. 1997, 151 games. He hit 308, 26 home runs, 118 RBI, and a 103 OPS plus. And that is good for a war of only 0.2 defense coming into play, I think, there. Uh, he does have a, a mustache, though, so that'll help you out. That'll be a 0.3. Next card here is, oh, this is a great card. Member of the Atlanta Braves. Big smile on his face along with a great mustache. It's Fred McGriff. Oh, man. What a swing. This is going to get you some points, I think, right here. Yeah, I will bet you a dollar that Fred McGriff will get more points next time you pull his card. I think he's going to be a Hall of Famer in uh, one of the next few Decembers. That's kind of what we were just mentioning last week. Uh, I think Keith Hernandez, likewise, is going to be in that group. But uh, Fred McGriff, definitely one of those guys that deserves to be in there. 
let's see, Fred McGriff, 493 career home runs. Speaking mm. of somebody that just missed out on a, a milestone. 277, 22 home runs, 97 RBI, five stolen bases, zero caught stealing this year. Wow. Yeah. Not for somebody that I led, had the under on McGriff's stolen bases. For somebody mm-hmm. that led the league with 22 double plays grounded into that year, that's a surprising number. Uh, let's see. Overall, wow. For I thought Fred McGriff had a pretty good glove too, but only a point two WAR. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm gonna say that. Well, and actually, that's his lowest of his career. So I'm gonna say you're correct that <laughs> any other year that would be higher. All right, next card. I remember this guy for the Expos. It's David Segui. Oh yeah, I hate to say this, but if the game is what first pops into your head, um, it was the Mitchell report when he said his name that he was <laughs> someone at least suspected. But uh, another powerful swing. I remember him also with Baltimore, among others. He was a Mariner. Well, I, I, the joke we have is everybody's a Mariner at some point. If you if you're if you're <laughs> ten years plus, you're going to be a Mariner. Came up with the Orioles and then finished his career with the Orioles in 97 with the Expos, 125 games, hit 307, 21 home runs, 68 RBI, uh, OPS plus of 131. This is another guy, never an all-star. You would have thought he would have been a replacement or something at some point. His war, much higher than Fred McGriff's, 2.1. Wow. Uh, he also does have eye black on, so that'll be a 2.2. And that brings you up to 24.1. So you've just pa- you've just passed Dave Dravecki. All right. All right. Not yet Bobby V, though, huh? No, you. yeah, Bobby V's in the rearview mirror, 21.4. Oh, okay. Yeah. I beat him. All right. Uh, this guy I do not remember with the expo- Expos, Yamil Benitez. Oh, yeah. Is he a right-handed pitcher? Uh, well, he's batting here, but he was with the Expos, oh. so no. Yamil Benitez. I remember yeah. Yamid Had and Armando Benitez. <laughs> he's, a, um. he's an amalgamation of those two. Yamil, four years in the big leagues, two with Montreal, one with the Royals, one with the D-backs. In 97, he was actually with the Royals, 53 games, an outfielder, corner outfielder, 267, eight home runs, 21 RBI. And that will be a war of a positive .4. So he's helping you out there. Nothing else on that card is going to be of help. You've got three cards left here. Um, this one will hopefully help you out. I just saw him last weekend. He was uh, in Oakland for the anniversary of the 20-win uh, streak for the A's. It's uh, Mr. Halle Berry, Dave Justice. David Justice. A friend of mine here at work is a huge David Justice fan, and he showed me a David Justice cameo, you know, when people can mm-hmm. pay and have a recorded message. David Justice is great at it. He just He, he was so... <laughs> smiling and kept saying the person's name. He's very I'm gregarious. Not, I'm, not, I'm not describing well. Exactly. He's <laughs> gregarious. He's like, hey, it's me, David Justice. <laughs> well, I think you're going to be happy here. All-star year, and he got uh, MVP votes, won a silver slugger. This was a good year. 329 average, 33 home runs, 101 RBI, a 418 on base, and a 158 OPS+. plus. And all of that equals a 3.8 war. Uh, but nothing else is going to help you there. But you're closing in on John Vampatella with his 31.8. You're at 28.3 with two cards left. This one, I'm not sure if it's going to help you out a whole lot with the Astros shortstop Orlando Miller. Orlando Miller. Yeah, I, 
I've never come across him in my travels, but I can picture him in those great. I love the '90s Astros moving star logo. I just, I loved it. The the black and white years. Is that yeah. what you yeah? Uh, let's see. In '97, his final year of his career, he was actually in Detroit. Played 50 games there, hit 234, two home runs, 10 RBI, and a WAR of 0.4. Um, nothing else is going to help you out, but at least you're going the right way. And your final card. You're at 28.7. All right, give me a uh, Frank Thomas or an Albert Bell. Well, you've got a guy that we pull a lot. He likes to wrestle alligators in his uh, in his <laughs> off season. It is overall first round pick Ben McDonald. Ben McDonald, Louisiana. Didn't he eat um, sardines before pitching too? Oh, I <laughs> I haven't heard that one. I think he had a superstition that he would eat sardines before starting games for the Orioles. We focus on the alligators. So we (laughs) (laughs) let's see. So this was his final year, age 29 in Milwaukee. He went eight and seven, a 4.06 ERA, 133 innings, 110 strikeouts, a 115 ERA plus. And that equals a war of 1.7. He's got a five o'clock shadow here. I'll give it to you. So that is a 1.8. And that will bring your total to 30.5, just a, a 1.3 short of the record. Wow. All right. I'll take the silver medal. Second place. Yep. It, it's a That's a good good pack you had there. But uh, thank you uh, for playing with us, Tim. And um, we will make sure to link everything in our show notes. But if you want to tell people how they can follow you and how they can find your books as well. Thank you. Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter, TD Haggerty. Uh, Haggerty with one G and my book is called tales from the dugout 1001 humorous inspirational and wild anecdotes from minor league baseball and it's available on Amazon and everywhere else for pre-order right now. Great. And I see the the foreword is by Bill Ripken. Your other book, you had Billy Butler. I I sense a trend with the forewords. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sorry, not to correct you, but Bill Ripken was the first book. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, The the new book, uh, Billy Butler is the forward and he tells a great minor league story about a game being delayed by a snake. I'm going to assume that was in Texas somewhere. Yeah, that was the surprising thing. Uh, that's how I got to know Billy. My first job was with Idaho Falls, and he was on that team 2004, and this was in Wyoming. You know, Wyoming is the Wild West. You don't want to mess with the snakes out there. Like I said, we'll put all of these links in our show notes. And, uh, Tim, we really enjoy talking to you, and, and maybe we can uh, get together again when the book comes out right around opening day next year. Great. I enjoyed it as well, and uh, happy to come on again. Yeah. All right, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, that's going to wrap up our show for this week. Again, if uh, if you want any more information on Tim Haggerty, especially to go ahead and pre-order that to Tales from the Dugout, I've already done it. I'm excited for it. It sounds like we'll probably be repeating stories from that quite often, and hopefully he'll come on again as we get closer to that. All those links will be in the show notes. Uh, if you want to see or hear or read more of us throughout the week, we can be found on all the socials. We are at Two Strike Noise. That is at T-W-O Strike Noise. And Mark, you want to tell them about our uh, very popular email address. Yes, you can write to us uh, anytime, anywhere, uh, because that's how electronic mail works. Oh, you need the address. It's, uh, what is it again? Oh, yeah, two-strike-noise, spell it out, T-W-O, strike-noise at gmail.com. I bet you could have guessed that. I bet they know how to spell it and everything. Yeah. They probably even know how email works. 
but we're just going to assume that you do because our listeners are very smart. But all right, that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, we'll see you next week when we are here for another episode of Two Strike Noise. Thank you. God bless you. Have a great day. Thank you.